Father, would you drive it home now through your word that we would be careful not to package up Christmas, but that we would live it out into the new year, that you would have your way with us and that we would be characterized daily in our whole character and person and communication that we are lovers and followers and worshipers of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the great salvation that we can know through Christ. And, and uh, Lord, the, the incarnation admittedly is a mysterious thing, and yet what a marvelous reality that you've loved us so much that you sent Jesus to be born of Mary, to be our Savior. And we praise you for that this morning, Lord. Now we apply ourselves to your word and ask you to use it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Pastor Everett reminded us that uh, this is the last Sunday of the old year, uh, 2010, and 2011 is upon us. And it is hard to believe, isn't it? And I was thinking how quickly Christmas has concluded. Um, one minute after midnight, Christmas was already over just this morning, right? And uh, we're gathered together on this Sunday. We hardly have had time to, to settle and to breathe. I appreciate your attendance. I know that so many of our congregation are scattered yet with the holiday. But I was thinking about how it does just seem a couple of days rather than um, a number of weeks ago that uh, Janet, and some of you have heard me reference our practice in our home, uh, had said to me, now don't forget, I need the Christmas tubs and Christmas boxes brought up before you leave. And I always uh, have to bring up the Christmas boxes before I leave for rifle season, the weekend before Thanksgiving. Because while I'm tromping the hills in Preston County, she will be decorating the house the week of Thanksgiving. And then when I come home, there's boxes there empty to be carried back downstairs. I was thinking about that. Isn't it interesting how we do box up Christmas, don't we? We have Christmas in a box. And until you get the boxes out, it's not Christmas. And then in a few days, she's going to say to me, I need those boxes brought back up because I need to shut down Christmas. She won't say it that way, but that's kind of how it is, isn't it? It's time to shut down Christmas today. And I think that that's a really wrong way to think about Christmas for believers in the Lord Christ. If you stop and think about it, I think that it is evident to many of us, and I want to challenge our hearts, and me included this morning, with the reality that Christmas is not something to be stored in a plastic tub down in the basement, but Christmas really is with the baby in the manger and the reality of the incarnation of Christ, God becoming of man, that, that it really is one of the defining realities of a Christian's life. Do you feel that and sense it? That if God became a man and it's true and it is, and if we've been to the manger and we have, we've worshipped, we've talked about it, we've preached it, we've sung about it, in essence, we've been to the manger and we recognize who it is, that that has to impact our life, lives all year long. I invite you to turn once again to Luke chapter 2 as we conclude the Christmas season. And uh, I was thinking even how we don't preach on these passages apart from the month of December. And we don't sing these hymns. It would be fun sometime in July to sing 
uh, some Christmas hymns, I guess, and nothing wrong with that. What we would say, no, you can't do that. It's not Christmas time, right? I invite you to turn to Luke's gospel in chapter 2, and I want to read the Christmas story one more time. And I want you to observe particularly the last few verses of the passage, and I want to draw out for us uh, from this text models, life models for how we should respond to visiting the Savior at the manger. The two models in particular that we will look at are the shepherds and Mary herself. They were there. They saw Jesus in person. And what and how did it impact their lives? What did it do to their thinking? How did it impact their? What was their response? And in a spiritual way, as we visit the manger this morning, it demands a response from us as well. I think it's a response for which we must fight. It's something that is easy to overlook. It's something that's easy to talk about and difficult to live out. Let's read the text. It's Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. It's interesting to me. We just sang the little chorus, Sovereign Lord. Boy, that is really evident in these first few verses, isn't it? A a political leader wakes up one morning and says, let's take a census. The practice of the census demanded that you return to your hometown. And here comes Joseph with his his engaged-to-be wife. The political leader thought he was just carrying out the business of government. He had no idea that he was putty in the hand of a sovereign God, that on that day, Joseph and Mary needed to be in Bethlehem because 700, 400 and 700 years before, the prophets had said, in Bethlehem is where the baby will be born. God is sovereign. You see it right there, don't you? Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. I would like us to look at the last four verses of this passage, verses 16 through 20, and use this short section as a reminder, even as I've already referenced holding up the shepherds and Mary as a model for us as to our response to having been with Jesus at the manger? How does it impact your life? Is it something that is so compartmentalized that we only think about it in a short few weeks of the year? The first thing that I want us to look at here is involving the shepherds, and I want you to notice that when they saw Jesus, they couldn't help but talk about it. When you meet Jesus and when you encounter Jesus, number one, you have to talk about it. Let's look and see what it says. Look at it in chapter 2, verse 16. The angel had come, and what a remarkable moment that must have been. Out in the stillness and in the darkness of the fields of night, as they watched over their sheep, this kabam moment when the angels come, and, and it, the word is, they were terrified. In the Greek, the word terrified means terrified, and it, it means really scared. And there they are, grown men, and uh, the message is given to them. And I love their response because they said, let's go and see. So verse 16, let's go and see at the end of 15. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see what this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. I take it that they believed it, but they wanted to verify it. They didn't want to miss it. They understood it enough at the level that he said, let's go check it out. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. You know, when you encounter Jesus and it's real and you know it and look at the experience they had to have had that night. Angels from heaven, a pronouncement, fulfillment of prophecy, 400 silent years shattered, Poor, common, ordinary shepherds, enlightened and engaged and invited to come to the bedside, the cradle, you might say, of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a moment. And there they are, and look what their response was. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. That word amazed in the passage prompted a memory in my mind that made me think that in the Gospels, we regularly see this kind of thing, don't we? People having unplanned encounters with the living Christ and it changes them forever to a startling reality that they cannot be quiet about it. It reminded me, uh, this, and when they observed they were amazed, reminded me of the passage in Mark's gospel in chapter 5. Will you turn there for a moment and let's just take a look at this. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. So go backwards in your Bible to Mark's gospel and chapter 5. We see this concept repeatedly in scripture. One of them that came to my mind was, is in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John were um, be, being oppressed by the political leaders and the kind of like the sheriff came to get them. And one of the things that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin there that were in opposition to the apostles preaching and the disciples preaching was that they recognized in Peter and John, do you remember this passage, Acts 4? They recognized in Peter and John that they were ordinary, unschooled men 
but they were extraordinary because they had been with Jesus. It was recognizable. These guys are not normal. They are not ordinary. Something is different about them. And what was it? They had been with Jesus. It shows when you've been to the manger, which leads to the cross, which leads to the cemetery in an empty grave, and you recognize who it is and what it is that's happening, it changes you and people ought to be able to see the difference. One of the most striking examples of this is this Mark's passage, Mark's 5. I like this story very much and uh, uh, often encourages me in ministry when I deal with very broken situations when people have found themselves trapped in sin and their lives are really messed up. I often think about this guy because he was really broken you can picture the Sea of Galilee, just kind of picture a lake shore. They say that the bank is steep cut there. And Jesus was in a boat with his disciples. He pulls the boat up on the shore. There's a steep cut bank. They say you can visit approximately where that spot is even today. And up on the bluff above the shoreline was the community cemetery. And there was this guy we call the crazy man of Gadaria, or this is the title in my Bible says the healing of the demon possessed man. This is the guy you recall that was possessed with so many demons that they called themselves legion. And, and when Jesus went to cast out those demons, they recognized Jesus. The demons identified and recognized Jesus as God. They were shaken. They knew that he was in control and they begged him to put them into a herd of swine. Evidently, demons do not like to be disembodied. We don't know why the swine were there. Evidently, there was a black market for pork um, among some of these Jewish brothers there. I don't know. Evidently, there were some Gentiles that liked pork as well. So there was a market. You got this whole herd of swine, and Jesus accommodates the demon's request, casts them into the swine, and this is the story where all the pigs go and run off the bank, fall into the sea, and drown. It's a remarkable scene, but it's not so remarkable as this crazy man that lives there who was so powerful in the possession of these demons within him that the community leaders could not control him. Remember the story? And, and they chained him. He lived in the tombs of this cemetery. He was wild. He was noisy. He was, I'm sure, an embarrassment to their community. But they could do nothing to stop him. When they had tried to chain him and contain him, he had broken free. And then he meets Jesus face to face. And look what it says in verse 14. It says, Mark 5, 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. Don't you love that? Jesus changed his life. Has he changed your life? Are you so broken in your sin this morning that you would say, I can't be fixed. I'm messed up. That's not true. If this guy can be fixed, you can be fixed. The marvelous thing about Jesus in an encounter with Christ and the living Christ is that on the cross, he paid the price for all of our sin. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. Now, we don't play games. We don't go to the cross so that we can keep sinning. You know, kind of like buying permission to sin. I can just go and buy his grace and get down by the cross and the blood covers it all and the sin and the next week go live and then come back and 
No, no, that's nonsense. The Apostle Paul said, God forbid that you would think like that and make a shame and a disgrace out of the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. But there is no sin that God's grace isn't sufficient to cover and forgive through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that today? And have you met the living Christ? This man did that day. I have no idea what his issues were, but after he met Christ, he was a new creation in Christ. Paul says that's what happens to all of us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old is gone and the new has come. And that's what you see packaged up in verse 15. He was sitting there dressed and in his right mind. This man who was naked and filthy and vile and cut himself with stones and screamed out and wailed with demons is now all put together. God got rid of the demons, forgave him of his sin and gave him the entry point of a brand new way of living. Look what it says. And they were afraid. I guess this kind of authority and power in Christ was stirring to their hearts. Those who had seen it, verse 16, told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And when the pe- then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. I-, I don't know if they thought they would lose their hog business or what, but they wanted him out of there. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. He'd been changed by Jesus. He didn't want to leave Jesus. I don't know if he was afraid the demons would come back. I've been with Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. Jesus did not let him, verse 19, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Evidently, there was 10 communities in that area, Deca, 10 communities. And everywhere this guy did, went, he did what? He did exactly what the shepherds did. I have a story to tell you. Let me tell you my story. I used to live in the tombs. I used to cut myself. Look at the scars. See, it's right here. Some of the indicators of the past. But now look at me. Look at my eyes. They're clear. There's no demons in me. You haven't heard me wailing. I live at home with my family. I pay my bills. I'm in order. My sin is forgiven. It's all because of Jesus. And everywhere he went, he had a story to tell. He wanted to talk about it. And look what the people did. Here's where that word, that phrase is. And all the people, the end of verse 20, and all the people were amazed. I wonder, when is the last time that you have talked about Jesus and anybody was amazed? But you say, well, Pastor Van, you don't understand. I don't have a story to tell. You don't have a story to tell? You forget that you are in the chair of condemnation. I don't care if you were dressed in your right mind while you were sitting there. Positionally, you were condemned to hell. And by the grace of God one day, at just the right time, Jesus came, born of a virgin, was laid in a manger, grew up and went to the cross for you. You don't have a story to tell? And your life's been transformed? We have a story to tell. Our problem is we just don't like to talk about it. I guess we're bored with the story. I don't know. And isn't it funny how at Christmas time we can talk about everything but Jesus? I was thinking like, like this morning, I found myself doing it. I reached in my pocket and I said, Hey, look, Rich, look at my knife I got for Christmas. I got me a new sharp knife. It's a, a, it's a buck, man, and they're really sharp. It's a good, it's a perfect size from a pocket. I like to talk about my knife. When's the last time I just talked about Jesus because it was Christmas time? 
Isn't that funny how we do that? Talk about all kinds of things. Back in Luke chapter 2 now, we recognize that, the, that one of the responses of an encounter at the manger with the living Christ, regardless of his age, the reality of the incarnation moved these shepherds to the point where they had to talk about it. It was part of their conversation. What's in your conversation? Is Jesus ever a part of your conversation? And you know, I think that that is one of the best things that we can do to reach out and to let our light shine and to respond to the incarnation. It's like the crazy man at Gadaria that got healed that we just read about. What did Jesus tell? Jesus said to that guy, I want you to come to this seminar that I'm giving on Saturday morning and I'm going to teach you how to talk about me. And I got this like spiritual laws thing and I got this sketchbook and I'm going to show you and I got these illustrations and I'm going to show you how to talk about me. No, what did Jesus say? Jesus said to the guy, you've met me. I've changed you. Now go to the Decapolis and tell everybody what great things God has done for you. There it is. There's your evangelism plan. It's called talk about it. I've told you the story before about my friend Tommy Hensley. And uh, he was living in Martinsburg. Tommy's always had a lot of trouble um, just keeping going. And I would try to encourage him and help him. And a bunch of men in the church have helped him. And we just got a phone call from Tommy last week. He's, he's doing pretty well right now. During the call, I couldn't hardly understand him because they were dumping rocks in the back of his big 18-wheeler dump truck. And he's working and he's doing pretty well down in Texas right now. And one time, many, many years ago, when I first met Tommy, I was out running in Martinsburg and I was at his house. I came by, he was sitting on the front porch of his house. And uh, it's up above High Street in Martinsburg and it's a pretty rough neighborhood right there. And a lot of crime, a lot of drug transactions. And, and it was summertime and it was hot and a bunch of people were out down below. We were looking down the street there and, and uh, a bunch of people hanging out on the corners and Tommy's sitting there, he's kind of discouraged and I was trying to encourage him and and I just looked and I was overwhelmed with the lostness of the neighborhood and how much they needed Jesus. I said to Tommy, I said, Tommy, how are we ever going to reach him? What? Reach who? This neighborhood, Tommy. Look at all these people. Look at, they're doing drugs right down there. There's a transaction going on right now. And look at there. Yeah, he said, yeah, they shot a guy the other night. How are we going to reach him? And Tommy said something really profound because he's a highly educated theologian and Christian leader. No. Because the answer is really not that difficult. Tommy looks up at me, I'll never forget it, and he said, talk to him, I guess. Oh, now there's an idea. There's an idea. You see, people don't know about Jesus if you don't talk about Jesus. And our problem is we get excited talking about everything but Jesus, don't we? We've been to the manger, we've seen Jesus, we've been to the cross, we've been to the graveyard and seen the empty tomb, and we still don't talk about Jesus. Amazing. And so the shepherds model for us a transformed conversation. Men who cannot keep silent. Let's look at Mary next. In a contrasting pattern, Mary is the opposite. She's not talking. She's being still. Look what it says Mary's response was. They spread the word. The shepherds did, verse 17. And all who heard it were amazed, verse 18. But, verse 19, here's the contrast. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Hmm. When you meet Jesus, one of the things you need to do is you need to talk about it. 
But what Mary models for us is another thing that we need to do when we've, meet, met, when we've met Jesus, and that is we need to think about it. We need to think about it. Do you see how Mary, she pondered, she mused, she marveled. The word here is meditation. The shepherds were highly impacted in their conversation, and Mary is highly impacted in the area of her meditation, and, and, and rightly so. Can you only imagine? Think about Mary. Of all the people... Who knew reality? You can speculate. You can cast judgment. You can talk behind her back. But Mary knew. Mary knew she hadn't been with a man. Mary knew that an angel did talk to her. Mary knew that her body did start to change. And Mary knew that that was a real baby she was holding in her arms that she had personally delivered. I guarantee she knew that. And she knew that it had come from God. And she knew that this was Messiah in arms again. Is it any wonder that Mary pondered? Wow. Comes out in her delightful magnificent, doesn't it? Mary's song in, in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Look what it says. Luke 1, 46. Flip the page. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm and so on and so forth. Boy, is it any wonder that Mary sat quietly probably hour after hour after hour holding that child, pondering, pondering the choice, pondering the selection, the reality of her position, pondering the reality of who it was that she held in her arms that she was raising. Seeing Jesus in her arms and knowing who he was demanded meditation. Now there's a good one for us, isn't it? We're not very good at this, are we? We're not very good at extended thought about one subject. We tend to have a short attention span, don't we? We tend to think that meditation is something for kind of funny-looking guys from the East who sit cross-legged and go, No, you know, I think there's a very appropriate discipline in the Christian life. And is it any wonder that we would not ponder, what is this whole thing? Have you thought about it? Have you meditated? Reminds me of another Mary. Will you turn to Luke chapter 10 real quick? Luke's gospel in chapter 10. And, and let me show you, remind you of another Mary who liked to sit and to meditate and take in Jesus. And in contrast with her sister Martha, my brother-in-law preached a Christmas message this year about this. Are, did you, are you going to have a Martha or a Merry Christmas? M-A-R-Y Christmas. You'll get it when you read the story. If you don't remember it, it's simple and you remember it probably. Luke 10, 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, Luke 10, 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Not talking, not doing, just sitting there. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came back to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed, 
And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is a hard one for me, I have to tell you. I'm busy all the time. I never get my work done. I always have more things to do than I can do, and my garage is still a mess. I don't have time to sit around and ponder. And let me say that I don't want to minimize the discipline of meditation on the move. Some of you commute on the train. Some of you can do it while you're driving. Some of you jog or exercise or take long walks and you're moving. There's nothing wrong with the discipline of meditation in movement where my mind is, is cycling through spiritual truth, letting God speak to me through his Holy Spirit, through the word of God that has been stored up in me and I'm pondering it, I'm meditating upon it. Many of you know that the, the word for meditation that's translated in the Greek has a lot to do with the same kind of word that is translated or would come over into, into English where a cow chews its cud. You know, a cow has, I forget, five different stomachs or something. How many stomachs, Henry? Four stomachs. I knew it was something like that. Four stomachs, and they'll eat real fast and store it in a big storage container stomach. And then, you know, you see them sitting down underneath the tree, and their heads bob while they're chewing. They're bringing it back up and working it over and processing it and just processing it. And that's how God, not evolution, can make green grass go in a black and white cow and come out white milk. It's amazing. Yeah, figure that one out. Duplicate that one. You can't do it. And so they're, they're just processing. And you can do that on the train. You can do it in the car. But I think there is also something to building into our lives time to be still. The psalmist talked about it. Alan referenced it. Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. Listen, our culture and our lifestyle isn't conducive to that, is it? It's not conducive. Can I make some recommendations? As I referenced earlier in the message, this is as much for me this morning as anyone. Three prerequisites. Three prerequisites for meditation. Number one, you have to slow down. You have to slow down. It's not hard. You just have to be still. The psalmist said it. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. I've got all this stuff going on. You know, we're like a bunch of politicians in Washington when it comes to solving the problem of deficit spending. It's not hard. It is not hard to solve the deficit spending. You stop spending. It's, the answer isn't hard. They make it seem hard. What's hard is the doing of it. I don't want to give it up. That's what's wrong. They don't want to go back home and tell the people that are building the bridge to nowhere that they can't build their bridge anymore. And I don't like to take things out of my life that I like to do that make me so busy. Many of them probably unnecessary, right? It's not hard to solve this problem. To be still, you have to be still. Our problem is we don't want to stop being still because we got so much fun stuff that we want to do and busy stuff and active stuff and responsibilities. And I don't know the, the way to find complete balance between Martha and Mary. Surely the dishes need to be washed. But evidently, based on that passage, that day they did not need to be washed. On the day when Jesus is in your home, he's not too worried about whether the rolls get burned or not. He's there. You better sit down and take it in. It's interesting, isn't it? 
The first thing we're going to have to do if we're going to be meditators of the reality of the incarnation and of the word of God is we have to be still. Number two, not only do we have to slow down, but we have to quiet down. You cannot meditate with all the noise that we have going on in our lives. This is not complicated or difficult rocket science either. You have to shut off the TV. You have to shut off the cell phone. You have to shut off the stuff that's rolling into the ear gate. Because if all this stuff keeps rolling into the ear gate, it clogs up the brain gate and you can't think. Our problem is we're almost never slow and we're never quiet. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. Thirdly, we need to narrow down. We got to sit down and we got to quiet down and then we need to narrow down. What do I mean by this? Listen, if you stop and examine your life as to what it is that's clogging up the plumbing of your brain and I'm going to guess that half of it is completely unnecessary and much of it is ridiculous nonsense. I was watching the Lakers game yesterday just a little bit and I was, I was observing some of the commercials and I was, they were promoting some of the movies for the New Year's week here. And, and I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. You're telling me that people will pay money and go see that? For what? You cannot overstate how ridiculously stupid it is. And not only that, then it's full of songs and music. And then the words to that nonsense is in you. How are you going to clear your brain? And our young people, our young people's minds are just cluttered. I walk in the back and the whole row of kids, they all got stuff in their ears. You got to pull that junk out of your ears and get rid of it so that you can hear God. And I, saw me, and I was saying, I'm on a rant now, don't stop me. There's this other kid, this little smooth-looking, girly-looking kid with their Justin Boober, Justin Biber, Justin... <laughs> what's his name? Justin Bieber, that's it. I, I literally have compassion for that boy. He, I know he's a multi-gabillionaire, but I feel so sorry for that boy. I bet he doesn't know how to split wood. <laughs> I'll bet he's never pumped gas in his own car before. I'll bet he's never shot a rifle. That boy is pitiful. He's got the girly-looking hairspray going. And I heard that they make fingernail polish in his name. For girls, that's what they're doing. What are they doing? They're marketing this young little kid so that little teeny bopper girls fall in love with this guy so that what? They can't live without it. They got his music going all the time and his posters on the wall. How are you going to think about Jesus, young person? You're going to think about Jesus if you got Justin Boober in your brain? What are you going to do? And we do it, don't we? And you know all the words. You know all the words to the songs. His little girly songs. He's pitiful. It's shameful for parents to let a boy do that. It's wrong. I'm not hacking him. He's a good kid, I'm sure. But I, it's pitiful. It's pitiful. I hope he's at least taking kickboxing lessons or something. Now I'll get back on the notes here in a minute. But do you understand my point? of noise and noise in the ears of our boys and girls? And how are they going to grow up and go to high school and grow up and go to college and live in the cesspool of a secular university where sin is rampant and pandemic when they've been growing up on Justin Bieber? That's unbelievable. I know his name's Bieber, but I, I refuse to say it. What are you going to do with that? 
If you're not filling your heart and your mind with Jesus, and if you've been to see Jesus and you're bored with Jesus and you've got all this other noise that you're excited about, what's your problem? I'll tell you what your problem is. You don't really realize who Jesus is. Your perspective is totally skewed. And so that's why you have no delight in meditating. That's why you have no delight in pondering the marvels of the living God that he would love someone like you and like me who's seated in the chair of condemnation and has no basis whatsoever to even get the time of day from a holy God. And he says, I love you, Vance, so much. I gave my son for you. So you don't understand who you are or what position you're in and you have not been to the manger and you have certainly not been to the cross and you have certainly not been to the empty tomb and met with Jesus or you wouldn't be able to stop talking about it. And so not only did the shepherds, number one, they talk about it and Mary, she thought about it. That's her meditation. The shepherds had a transformed conversation, didn't they? And Mary couldn't help but spend her time in meditation, pondering. Finally, let's wrap this thing up before I get in big trouble. At least teach your kids to listen to John Denver or something, all right? (laughs) Preachers only preach against things they don't like, right? Number three, back to Luke 2. Look what it says. Mary treasured up all these things, verse 19, and pondered them in her heart. And verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Don't you love that phrase? You love that phrase? I had a man come up to me in the foyer with tears in his eyes after the first service. Said, he said, all week long, I've been thinking about that phrase, just as you had been told just as we had been told, how everything was exactly the way God said it was going to be. And he started going clear back to Genesis 3. Exactly the way God said it was going to be. It's happened. And he went clear to the second coming. Exactly the way God... It choked him up. The reality that when God speaks and he tells people, this is how it is. But look what the shepherds did. They checked it out. They went and examined it for themselves. They went and... and saw the credibility of the word of the angels and exactly at the manger was how it was. And what did they do? They could not help but praise God. See, not only will you talk about it and not only will you think about it, but number three and finally, if you meet Jesus, you're going to have to sing about it. You're going to have to sing about it. This is their adoration. Their adoration, how they love to worship the Lord. They praise God. Oh, Lord. Somehow I've got to express it. And yes, it's valuable to sing. And that's why I try to select hymns and courses that are filled with theology and accurate biblical statements. And we sing about our Jesus together. But what are you listening to and what are you singing about when, it's, when you're all alone? Is it characteristic for you to sing a song of praise and adoration to God because you've been thinking about something and meditating on it to the point that you finally have to express yourselves? Maybe you're in the car all by yourself and you start to sing a song. That's why it matters what you listen to. That's why you... So much of the stuff that we fill our lives with is totally unnecessary. It is totally ridiculous. But not only that, it's actually harmful to us because you can only hold so much in your brain. 
And when you've got that junk in your brain, then you're not thinking about the things that Paul would say, think on these things, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are godly, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things, meditate, and then let the song come out of your heart. When you've seen Jesus, you want to sing about it. Mary, Mary had to act in worship, didn't she? Will you turn to John's Gospel in chapter 12? John's Gospel in chapter 12 and look at this. This is the same Mary we were just talking about. Sister of Martha. Sister of Lazarus. Six days, John 12, 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Surprise, surprise, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Who do we talk about, Martha or Mary? Jesus says later in the passage, this beautiful act, Judas, sit down and be quiet, will be talked about from now on until I come again. You see, Martha couldn't hold it in. Martha had to express herself in adoration, didn't she? Just like the shepherds. The shepherds had to go and they had to sing and praise the Lord. And Martha had to do something. And she took this pint of pure nard and she broke it and she poured it on her Lord. And then she loosened the pin out of her hair and her hair fell and she got on her knees and she wiped his feet with her hair. You talk about humility. You talk about love. You talk about adoration. Listen, if we're not talking about Jesus and we're not thinking about Jesus, what makes you think we would ever really sing about Jesus? If he's not part of your conversation and he's not part of your meditation, then I doubt that you're doing much in the department of adoration. What do you think? And so I think the way to wrap up this message is that we kind of shape these into goals for the new year. So in 2011, and I'm telling you, I'm preaching it myself, my work is never done. And my honey-do list isn't even begun yet, not to speak of my garage and wood that needs cut. I don't have time to sit still. I think that for believers in the Lord Christ who've been to the manger, the cross, and the grave, we don't have time not to sit still if it's real, right? And so for the new year in 2011, wouldn't it be a good thing? I'm going to start talking about Jesus. He's going to become part of my conversation. And I'm going to start thinking about Jesus more than ever. And he's going to be the focus of my meditation. And I'm going to sing more about Jesus. And I want to be a Christian that's characterized with genuine, authentic adoration for King Jesus. If you get it, it seems like you can't not do it, right? Let's bow our heads and pray. I don't know what needs to change in your life. I spent a few minutes earlier in the message talking about the transforming power of Christ. 
and how He'll make you a new creation. And maybe that's where some of you need to start is with this whole reality of accepting Christ as your Savior from your sin. You recognize you are a sinner and that baby Jesus came to grow up, to go to the cross, to be your sin bearer. And today you can look to God and you can say with all sincerity before the Lord that you acknowledge you're a sinner and you know that Jesus paid the price for your sin. And this will begin a whole new way of talking for you, a whole new conversation. It's an act of faith. It's not just an intellectual assent of a historical fact. It is plunging yourself, falling over in faith, so to speak, depending completely on Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And you know that he alone is the one who paid the penalty for your sin in the eyes of a holy and just and righteous God. And you're admitting that to him this morning for the first time, and you're acknowledging you believe that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is God in the flesh. Doesn't mean you understand everything about it, but you got that much straight. And you have to take that step of faith, putting your trust in Christ alone. And that's when the transformative power of Christ enters in. You become a child of God and you end up dressed and clothed and in your right mind, spiritually speaking, because of the righteousness of Christ that is yours. For the rest of us, shame on us for being bored with Jesus. Shame on us for being so busy with lesser things that it's disgraceful, the things we get excited about. And we can hardly fit Jesus into our lives. Will you, as I will seek to do, set some goals for the new year? Change can't happen without change. It's not that we don't know how to do it. It's just we're refusing to do it. You know how to sit still. Find a chair, shut the door, and sit down. Everybody knows it's time to do some of this stuff. And so, Father, we yield ourselves to you. We acknowledge the weakness of our flesh, the proneness of our old ways and and our, our proneness to love the ways of the world so that our minds are cluttered and our pace is fast and our song is a tune that you don't recognize. So please forgive us, challenge us to start anew and afresh the beginning of this new year. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.